Digital 410 proudly presents the What's the Scuttlebutt podcast with your hosts, Don Abernathy, Jeff Kopsetta, and Henry Sledge. Welcome, everybody, to another episode of the What's the Scuttlebutt podcast, your favorite World War II-based podcast, and we are here for another fun, exciting night of world travel and tale of all kinds of fun and excitement. Joining us, as always, Mr. Henry Sledge. Henry, how are you doing today, sir? I'm doing well. Doing well. Happy to be here. Happy to have you. And joining us, as always, from the great big ass state of Texas, Mr. Jeff Copsetta. Jeff, how are you doing today, sir? Yeah, I, I wouldn't say as always. I feel like I, I didn't want to make you feel bad. Henry I didn't want to point out the always. obvious to everybody and embarrass you in front of our guests. But <laughs> anywho, <laughs> joining us from the great white north, you know him from the HBO Pacific. You know him from his appearances on the What's the Scuttlebutt podcast. Mr. Scott Gibson. Scott, how are you doing today, sir? Very good, eh? Eh? Hey. And the Very award good. for the best camera of the night makes all of ours look like we're rocking webcams from 2004. Great job on the technology, sir. You must be rocking you know, an it's, iPad. It's what an actor has to do, right? Yeah, gotta look good, gotta look good. So That's all, that's all it is. Teeth and hair. Teeth and hair, Don. That's the, the key components. Both things that need a good insurance policy. Unless you're a lady, then you got to go with the legs. Interesting fun fact, prior to the hurricane, my roof got reinsured by the same people that insured probably your hair and teeth, the Lloyds of London. So they came through with my uh, insurance payments on my roof, much like they do the actress's legs who, who uh, insure them for millions of dollars. Before we get into uh, your goings on, we kind of tease people that Jeff is going to do this from time to time, and we don't do it. And I'd like to throw curveballs to Jeff to see him, like, shaking his chair wondering what the hell jeff uh give a brief synopsis a little brief um oh i don't know breakdown of your latest model project it's not exactly world war ii but we're going back to the precursor world war one the pilot who's named after the frozen pizza and after snoopy's character the one and only red baron man yeah that is a curveball because i could have had it sitting here waiting for that Should have, but... um yeah, you know, like I've said on the show before and, and, you know, with conversations with you guys, is, you know, it's really hard to understand the Second World War if you don't quite get the First World War. And it took me a long time to really kind of figure that out. And, you know, it's important for for those who just strictly stick to World War II, I get it because there's so much we want to read, right? There's so much out there. There's so much to know about the Second World War that... You know, you don't want to stray, um, but I went down that rabbit hole and I've enjoyed it because it's put so much into perspective. So, yeah, as you guys know, I like to do a little uh, historical, uh, you know, history through modeling, I guess you could say, uh, because I don't want to say I still build model airplanes because, you know, that's for that's for Scott's like, yeah, that's for dorks. Hey, we live say in it. I don't want to. I don't want to alienate half our audience here, but we do live in a time where it's perfectly acceptable for forty-three-year-old dudes to go to Comic Con dressed up like as their favorite comic book character. So there's absolutely nothing wrong with you and your son spending quality time putting together a uh, one, 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 a scale of a, of a uh, canvas airplane. Tri-wing, correct? Uh, well, I I built his triplane, the 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 very the famous red DR one, Fokker DR one, or. The British called them tripes, uh, and it was kind of it was Germany's answer to the Sopwith triplane. You know, the, the we were the first ones. The Allies were the first ones to have a three-plane, um, you know, 
triple winger, I guess you could say. Um, so that became just the infamous, you know, like you said, the Red Baron pizza and Snoopy and the Red Baron. It just was like the most famous aircraft that came out of the First World War. And interestingly enough, uh, building this model, doing the research that I do, there's still debate today, uh, 105 years after von Richthofen was shot down, as to what color the underside of his aircraft was. Everybody's just assumed it's all red. And um, there's a good chance it wasn't. Most experts say that the underside was that light blue, German aircraft uh, underside blue. Um, so that's the scheme I went with, red on top and the and that uh, pale blue on the bottom, because that's what the experts say. But it's interesting now, you know, we still can't even solve that. We still don't even know. There's some Canadian pilot, right? Some Canuck we give credit to, right? Roy Brown. We give him credit to shooting him down, but it could have been, um, you know, rifleman on the ground. So two things. This leads to one of my questions I had when you're talking about people tend to have a more interest in World War II opposed to World War One, unless they're longtime historians, which my first question would be, do you think a lack of source material would be for that reason, which would then also include his follow-up? We're arguing over the color of the bottom of his plane because of lack of source material, because of you know the infancy of black-white photography at the time. Yeah, that's, that's a good point. There's no color photos, so people are really having to dive deep into the shading, and is there a change? Does it look like it's different from the red? And on and on and it's stuff that just makes people's eyes bleed and nobody really cares about it anyway so <laughs> just make your best your best you know guess and try to keep history alive and have fun with it what was the technological reason for the tri-wing did they think it was more maneuverable did it have better lift with a heavier engine what was the actual technical reason for going with the tri-wing uh, yeah, that's actually a really complicated question. I don't want to waste too much time on it, but y yes, for a uh, short answer, yes, it was supposed to be, it was very maneuverable, uh, had a very short stubby wingspan, it was a very small aircraft, and I didn't realize how small it was until I put it next to the other ones that I had built, you know, I, I built a Fokker D7, a, a Spad 13, and a Sopwith Camel, and the triplane was just minuscule compared to those, and yeah, I guess... But the control services were only on the top plane, you know. The other two were just, and there's no dihedral to them. So, again, it's those things when you think about the technology in 1917 when they first debuted um, to what we were using not that long into the future, um, you know, Battle of Britain, for example. So, um, all of those things, you know, all the pieces fall together, all the dominoes from the first world war to lead us to the second. And it's interesting to learn about. Absolutely. And thank you for sharing the photos. And we will also include those as always at WTSP world war com. But without any further ado, Mr. Scott Gibson, let me ask you a question. Um, when you signed on to do the series, obviously you had a little bit of a hint from what the actors from band of brothers had done, but did you ever anticipate that uh, World War II would have such an influence or a grasp on your life after the production? No. Short and sweet. Um, no. Uh, at the time, being cast and doing that, you're just so wrapped up in, um, I don't want to fuck this up. And what are they going to do to me over there? And do I really have to do boot camp? <laughs> and 
it's Spielberg and Hanks. Yeah. Uh, and I guess the, it, the pressure of portraying a real life person opposed to fictional characters got to be that much more pressure on you. A lot of pressure. And this is a story that's out there now. I don't, you know, name names, but, um, the actor who was supposed to play John Bassalone was uh, fired on, on, on his first day of boot camp. You know, they just made a choice and brought um, John Seda and just didn't work out. So <clears throat> this guy hadn't even been on screen yet and he got fired. And these things happen, that, you know, um, obviously not a lot of people know about, but we all felt like, holy shit, mm -hmm. this can happen. So you just wanted to get on screen as quickly as possible on camera and, uh, and you're done. Let's um, make it more expensive for them to fire me. <laughs> yeah. We don't want to do reshoots. They still had, they still had to pay him. Um, but you know, it subsequently over the years, it's just become bigger and bigger. Uh, more people interested, more fans, younger fans. Um, and as a result, you are, it's, it's unlike anything else in terms of being a celebrity is the fact that you are representing, you know, someone who fought in, in the Pacific and, and European. And it, it's just, it's so incredibly humbling for one, um, so much gratitude for it. Um, but also that you're able to get that person's name out there. People understand that story. They watch the series, they read the books. Um, at the time I, I, I thought I do the series and then um, maybe I get another series, right? As an actor, you think this will propel me into something else and whether that happens or not, but um, none of that really matters. I mean, like this is, you know, the greatest thing I've ever done. And for a lot of guys, the same thing. It's it's just you, you do a lot of stuff that really isn't that important. It's entertaining, et cetera, and so forth. But to do this, and it, even in Normandy, when I go to Normandy, people that uh, recognize me for for that role is 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 just incredible. Well, and that's kind of what I was getting to with my first question about: Did you ever anticipate having the World War II having this much more impact on your life? Because it's been several years since the series, and as we're having you on to explain and give us a rundown, you just returned from a trip overseas that had to do with the topic of World War II, and that's kind of why I was wondering: it's Like, I bet he never really anticipated things going this far. But um, for those who aren't familiar with your social media pages and your your adventures. Give us our audience a little rundown of uh, the trip you just took. Uh, yeah, I met uh, this group. So I was there last year with Tim Gray and the World War II Foundation. And on that trip, I met Jeff Wells with his group, which is uh, Wishes for Heroes, for our heroes. Um, they raise money for active serving duty military in the U.S. So anyone with whatever sort of issue they raise money and they have these gala events. So I went to one in San Antonio. I went to one in Milwaukee and then they were coming back for their second year in Normandy. Uh, they rented a Chateau, um, uh, Ile St. Marie, which is on the property of, I think around 1300 William the Conqueror. There's Viking wall 
establishment there, but the current family, I guess they can trace their history back there about 300 years. And his new group, uh, new charities, Walk Among Heroes, so they bring veterans to Normandy. There's not very many of them left, but <laughs> uh, we were there this, this year with Reed Clanton, um, who will be 99 in August. And he was with uh, the 84th Infantry, um, 29th Division. He landed uh, on Omaha Beach. And the other veteran was uh, James Kelly uh, um, with the 6th Airborne. Um, I think the regiment was the Dublin Rifles, if I get that exact. But he, he, uh, um, he, he, lent, he, uh, yeah, he, he landed D-Day as well. So just a tremendous and very different experience to be there with these guys because they are so much recognized as heroes there um, by all the people in Normandy or anyone that goes there. And um, it, it, it just to, to walk where they walked and, and to get any kind, glean any kind of information or stories from them is, is just incredible you know i see you also had the privilege of meeting mr jake larson yes yeah that was our first day at Oman beach we went there i think it was june 2nd um right at around six thirty in the morning so we had a very good visual of what it would have been like at that time uh with the tide out um, the wind and the cold and everything. And we went down to the beach and then went to this restaurant and, uh, Jake was in there just sort of, you know, coincidence off. He, he was with a bigger group, but for some reason he, he got in there and, um, he's a hundred and I think he's 101. Yeah. Now. Yeah. I think so. And, um, he, he could not stop talking about <laughs> her, expressing his gratitude for being alive because he said he, he, his Higgins boat landed and the only thing that basically saved his life on Omaha was he was able to get to this berm quickly. And he said, everyone else was dead, like dead, gone. And, um, he, he, he was behind that berm for a while and obviously, you know, made it, um, out of there, but he, he, he would, he said, he was like, why, you know, why me? Why me? Like, why, why did I survive? And I'm so grateful. And he, he, he was the happiest, uh, most beautiful man. And I guess if you make it to that point and you survive that, then obviously if you, re you, you reflect back, um, that's what you would say, I, I would think, but he, he just, you know, he's how lucky am I? How lucky am I? I? Kept saying that. And he's sharp as attack. Sharp um, as attack. I've had him on the show twice, and I I yep. kind I saw his videos back in on a, near the end of the pandemic on TikTok. His granddaughter was putting up one little minute one videos. I reached out to him, and he came on. And up till the show, you know, you're like, okay, this guy does one minute podcast. How? I mean, not podcast. One minute TikTok. How cognitive is this guy? I mean, he seems, he seems pretty on point. And so when you interview vets, you really don't know if you're going to have to pull a lot of information out of them, if you're going to have to kind of go back and edit and put the show together. He is the epitome of brain as sharp as a tack, regardless of what his body's doing. 
he went for 200 minutes straight and still wasn't done. I had to follow him. We actually had him on for two consecutive episodes because he is so sharp and he has so much information. And as you said, he's so happy and jovial. And he just go. He's just one of those guys. You just pull that string and you just step back, cross your arms, and just let him go. He is they're, they're, so sharp. There were these kids that came in. I mean, these girls had to have been, I don't know, eight, nine years old, French family. And I think he'd met them earlier on in the trip or maybe the previous year. I'm not sure. They brought him artwork. You've never seen love like he expressed to them and them to him. And it, because in France or, you know, particularly in Normandy, I mean, these kids are they know more about the war than, you know, people do here. Mm -hmm. And the love that they expressed to him was just like, just, just so, so, so beautiful, so beautiful to see and witness. And there was, you know, obviously a lot of that around uh, the whole time that we were there. And he, and the ladies love him. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> he, he <laughs> just... totally, I mean, he, he, he's a stud and, all of them are all of them are just i have a hard time talking to them just because i'm like i have no idea what to say to you he's you know he's the type of person like god willing if i live to be that age i hope um i have his personality his wherewithal and just he's just on he's on the ball and he, he yeah he knows what he you know much like a lot of other veterans you know post-war and through the 60s and 70s they just kind of kept themselves even through the 80s and 90s and later in life as you look around you see more and more people are passing away and you see there's more and more renewed interest in original news stories that haven't been told he you know through his granddaughter and one minute tiktoks at the time he just started telling these one little minute stories and just it, they're so interesting like he told the story on the show about the the gentleman at the on the on the beach who took the hit instead of him and then and all the others uh, there's just so many great stories and like we did last week we'll post a link to his two episodes along on the episode for this particular episode but if you guys haven't heard that episode two episodes go back and listen to jake he he just mm. goes and goes and, and then he surprised me sent me a, a postcard in the mail with his photo from uh deed um uh, from overseas plus some of his his um more modern day photos i actually have a his postcard hanging up here in the podcast studio he, he he's planning to be back uh, for the 80th. That it's it's good to have goals. Got to have reason to get up in the morning, right? And that far ahead, it's it's, and that's got to be, I mean, that's a long flight, right? Yeah. Well, the the uh, Jim he he was over there and uh, the 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 British guy he flew over in a glider <laughs> oh. on D Day, yeah, and. Um, Bringing him over there, the people, uh, one of Jeff's people in England, London, talking to Jim, saying, "Do you want someone to meet you at the airport and bring you over there?" And typical English guys, like, "Well, you know, the last time I flew over there was in a glider, so I'll be all right." It's <laughs> fantastic. I landed in the glider, so I'll, I'll be fine. And this guy was spry. He's turning ninety-seven. He works out three days a week. Um, he, he, I said, "What's your secret to?" Your health, he says, Scott, I eat cornflakes every day. You know, just, just so British. But um, it, And he plans to be back there. And I think there, were, there, there was a group uh, sponsored by Delta Airlines 
that brought about 40, 40, 45, 50 uh, veterans from the U.S. And um, next year, I think American Airlines is doing it. While you were over there, did you guys primarily show up to public speaking events, or did you get to do any battlefield tours? Uh, no, we did. We did um, Omaha, uh, Utah. You, uh, the the thing that left me, or you know, upon reflection coming back, was that along that Atlantic Wall, there were eight thousand bunkers yeah. built, eight thousand, which is incredible. And on D Day, they were unscathed. The bombings barely hit, and if they did hit, it didn't do much. So, um, you know, maybe if they had done, you know, if the landing was at night, et cetera, and so forth. But, um, and the, the conflict between Runstead and, and uh, Rommel, because Runstead was in charge and, and Rommel was brought in to just deal with the, uh, those landings. And I think, I think it was, was Rommel that wanted the Panzers to be moved in. Yeah. <clears throat> and Runstead didn't. And it was like, well, let's let them come inland, and then we'll get them. And then the other guys going, well, no, we'll hit them when they land. And you think, man, if those if if that Panzer division was there, it might have been game over. Well, a lot of that had to do with the um, subterfuge on our behalf with the Ghost division and and all the mm-hmm. um, purpose fed intel, quote unquote, through the French resistance about oh they're going to land up north. So they really didn't. They had you know a lot of them speculate no, it's going to be down here. The intel was saying up north, and so they're kind of trying to argue over where to position the Panzers. Okay, we're kind of put a little further north, so if they do go north, we can get up there. If they're going to go south, and so a lot of that, thankfully, had to do with the um, the subterfuge and the um, the bad intelligence that we purposely fed to them through the uh, French resistance. When you but when you're there in one of those bunkers on the beach, that's I mean it looks like it probably did back on D-Day. And the only, you know, one of the bigger ones we were in, it, you, there was a Navy shell that clipped the top of the bunker and then it hit where their ammunition was. And you could see the holes, but virtually the whole thing is still intact. And and that was one that had an 88 in it. And, and you just think of these guys hitting the beach. I mean, it was uh, a turkey shoot, right? For, you know, Charles, Charles Shea, the medic, Native American medic, and he's got a monument there. And we went to his ceremony, and um, he was talking about when he landed there on Omaha and, and rescuing guys. But he got up to the berm, and he looked back, and he figured there were about two hundred guys dead. You know, so all that is just so. I mean, you read about it, and you know, you talk to people, but when you go there and you really put it into perspective, it's 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 really really profound yeah i was thinking you're probably standing in this bunker and we've seen the photos we've seen the recreations in the movies but when you're standing there and you're i'm sure there's a lot of people talking but if there was a moment of quiet you probably could figure how eerie it would be to be the german in that bunker on quote-unquote guard duty and you have the sound of the ocean the smells coming through the dampness in the bunker and then all of a sudden as the light comes up you just see it <laughs> in front of you like yeah, yeah it's about but- to get real what what must they have seen? Yeah, right. Like just, I mean, 
it, it, you know, the bombings are over and then you're like, okay. And, and then you, you wake up at six, you know, whatever, six thirty in the morning and you see all that it just be, it, it's so hard to put into perspective. I, I, you know, even for some of these guys, I, I hesitate to even ask them, you know, Reed or James, any sort of personal story, any kind of nitty gritty about a day, because I think it must be just so hard for them really. Yeah. You know, to and the experience I've had of interviewing a handful of vets and a few I've talked to off the air, my whole thing is I try to talk to them about the daily lives of soldiering, whether it's, you know, here, I don't bring up the combat so much. And then as the story progresses, if they bring it up and start talking about it, then I'll kind of follow up. But yeah, I'm like you, I don't just dive into the, the nitty and the gritty of it. Jeff actually gave me a, the book version of the longest day. And in the early chapters, a very cool description of one of the German commanders pulling down. They give a beautiful description, pulling down a nondiscreet road. He gets out. There's a little cobblestone path that goes curves around in the woods and goes down along the the edge of his cliff, and it's very descriptive. And it was just that was the entrance path to one of those bunkers you're talking about. It's like they weren't some big grandiose thing. It was just you pulled over in this little pine wood area, got off, walked down this cobblestone. You try not to fall down the cliff because it had a little cable, and boom! Next thing you know, you're walking through concrete doors and you're in these bunkers. And the other thing, I mean. The, I, the movies couldn't really any of the movies couldn't really do this. But so so much of inland was flooded. Yeah. So, hundred first, eighty second, um, and I guess not not so much the British. They they like maintained I think hit, hitting their targets, but guys land in five feet of water and drowned because of all the equipment. Um, you know, in in order to secure the those bridges, the um, great stories, uh, the filthy thirteen that uh, those engineers that secured some bridges, Pegasus Bridge, mm -hmm. the British took that in about 10 minutes because they landed so close with their gliders. I, I don't know exactly know where Jim landed, but this town that they went to take, and I forget the name of it, but they were getting bombarded from artillery from, a, from Canadians. So, he's, so a, a major swam across these two rivers connected with the Canadians said, Hey, you know, you're going to, you're going to level us and kill everybody in this town. And so they stopped. Um, but someone had asked him, you know, well, what was it like to be under friendly fire? And Jim again, just, well, I, I didn't find it that friendly. Yeah. Right. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and that's all he has to say about it. But we went to the monument to his, uh, his battalion in this little town. And, um, he just stood there in front of it for the longest time. And Jeff was just starting to ask him, like, how do you feel or anything? And, and Jim didn't say a word, not a word because it just, you could see it brought him right back. And, and this is, you know, this little village and it's someone's backyard kind of on the road where the monument is. So really, really moving and perfect. Like, so I just, feel so fortunate to be able to have gone there with those guys. Jeff, you got any follow-ups? Uh, man. Yeah. I just, I just love hearing it. Cause Scott and I, we've talked quite a bit, you know, since he's been back and just hearing these stories, it's just, um, man, I, I can't wait to go because, um, you know, it just made me think when you said walk where they walked, you know, <clears throat> just the other day, 
Uh, you guys may have saw I posted a little today in history about, you know, when General Custer and five companies were wiped out the little bighorn. And uh, I remember walking that battlefield and just that eerie, you know, I didn't get it so much at Gettysburg probably because I was just a little too young when I was at Gettysburg. But being at, being at the little bighorn and just seeing just every now and then you're just tall grass and every now and then just a headstone that says unknown, you know, not even headstones crosses you know just just those reminders of what was done there so i can only imagine i've never really stepped foot um you know recently of course i don't know how many people fought and died over the city of baghdad right you know, millions through the ages so I, I don't even know the history i probably walked right through there and had better other things to worry about but um yeah i couldn't imagine Scott, especially somebody like you who have really, you know, delved into the subject, uh, have made an emotional attachment to it, you know, in, in your portrayals, um, to, to have that kind of understanding and then to be there, uh, you know, I just, I couldn't imagine, um, because this is not necessarily just a crime scene. It was just massive amounts of life that were snuffed out on both sides. Just so many humans, uh, taken out. Uh, it's just to see yeah. the local, to see the local people. Like we stopped at Lafayette Bridge, and we'd met um, with Helen Patton, who's granddaughter of George S. And she had invited us to her place, right beside Lafayette Bridge. And so we got out and doing a little talk. Jeff was talking about what happened, and there was this young kid. I mean, this guy was early 20s and he stood there for 20 minutes with his girlfriend i don't know how much he understood or anything like that but you know reed was in the wheelchair and uh he just waited patiently and waited and waited and waited and then we started to move and then he just came over he's like could i you know and and he just you know to reed like thank you so much like you know it's 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 so moving um, and, and it's nice, obviously, when people recognize you as an actor for being these things, and I, I, I'm not going to take anything away from that. It's, it's cool. But with these guys, when they, you know, wait that long and shake their hands and get things signed and they clap for them, you know, you're just like, man, you know, like these are, they're the real deal, right? They're, they're the real heroes. It's kind of mind-boggling to me that it's almost like maybe here in America we're we're having to put forth so much effort and make it we have to like make history like amazing and sexy and, and just you know just ridiculous to make people love it and it's just inherent in the Europeans that they just you know what I mean like it almost seems like why do our own you know the the uh, basically you know the the um, the people who inherited what our victors did, you know, what the allies did generations before us, you know, we should, to me, I feel like, you know, why aren't we so grateful? Because I guess maybe the Europeans have a better understanding because they lived under a different rule and they saw the actual other side of the coin. Whereas in America, we've never actually had to maybe deal with that you know in the west we've never been conquered and then had to retake back yeah i you know jeff wells talked about that a number of times that there's 
There's nothing in the U.S. There's there's nothing in Canada. Um, there's very little Canadian involvement in, I think, in uh, D-Day celebrations there. But hopefully next year, don't you know, there'll be a little bit more, and the British as well. But, um, yeah, you would think there'd be more, but obviously that land, territory, people being liberated, and the fact that they, like, it's, it's taught, like, I don't even think it's taught in as much detail as it is there. Like those kids are, and they are just in awe, you know, they're when they see these guys and, um, you know, next year that might kind of be it, you know? I don't want to paint with a broad swath, but just based off of a lot of the photos we see when, you know, I've, I've, have yet to be to go over there so i don't know firsthand but to see photos for like gentlemen like you who are on tour my other friends it seems like the and henry's going to be dropping in and out that's why i was texting i want to ignore you he was sending me text messages he was getting bandwidth alarms so he just dropped out but anyhow it would seem to me that because here in america we seem to just tear down our old buildings and replace them with new shit as much as we can whereas over there at least seeing the photos the progress isn't so overwhelming that i'm sure when you grow up in a village in a township where you're walking to school and you still see some of these stone buildings that have bullet holes and debris in it and things like that you know all these years later some of these towns still suffer from the scars of war and obviously when that stuff happens to your village your town your hamlet and you're literally your grandparents or great-grandparents were liberated from the Germans by the Allies, I I can only imagine it would have a greater impact on your life than it would over here in our hemisphere where, yeah, we had family members who fought and died and we gave a lot of materials and goods, but that's a, that's a far sight different than having that plus the bombs and the destruction and the actual combat on your grounds. And so it would make sense that they're more up to speed on it. And it's all, uh, it's all farmland. Yeah, and, and small villages. This, th- these are not towns that is, you know we're going to build suburbs that look modern or, you know, there's not a lot of when everyone leaves after you know June seventh, they're like ghost towns. Yeah. Um, but all the all the farmland around there, and then the villages, and the one it was, uh, I think it's, Angeville de Plain, but there's a church there that. The American medics treated Germans and Americans, and you go into the church. Uh, I think a bomb went through the roof, and all the uh, plain glass from medieval times have been replaced. I have to post some pictures about that. But the pews that are still there have blood stains on them, yeah. huge blood stains, and they're still raising money to you know, fix the place up. But the, the, the villages are so small, but they were the first places uh, liberated in Europe, right? St. Mary Glees was the, was the first town liberated. Yeah, I guess um, the benefits of having farmlands that made for a lot of landing zones for uh, gliders and, and air corps guys. Welcome back, yeah. Henry. Your connection better now, fella? Say again, Don. I said, welcome back. Is your connection better now? I thought it was, but it. You're still coming through crystal clear. Bit. We can hear you crystal clear. You can. Okay. So I'm, I'm still getting a bandwidth of low signal. I got you. Damn technology. Just regular people. Any you know the the 
on June 4th, they do this flyover around Lafayette, which is such a small bridge and the huge fight that they had there. But the landing zone for people like 82nd jump and even regular, you know, if you're just, hey, I want to pay to jump in, out of one of these C-47s and you get in the gear and you go on a static line and you can jump. Uh, the last this year and last year, they weren't able to do any of that because the winds were too strong. So, us you know stupid actor guys, we met up with uh, the eighty second Airborne and their company commander because they have a football game that they do the last two years, the one hundred first versus the eighty second. Nice, which was supposed to happen, I think a day or two days before D Day, but it didn't. So uh, Helen Patton has resurrected this, and last year the uh, the eighty second one, this year the one hundred first one, and um, it, the company commander, the colonel, invited us to uh, jump with them next year, uh, which would be absolutely insane. When have you actually thought about it to the point like shit? I'm gonna have to jump out of this plane. <laughs> I I've jumped. Okay, so you you've have experienced skydiving then. Well, just once. Okay. <laughs> that was three thousand feet with a square parachute. This is out of a C forty seven at I don't I don't know, I think they're like twelve hundred feet maybe. Well the reason I asked is I had somebody on from the round uh canopy jump team a couple years back and you know they, they train here on Florida and so you know for not too much money. I already have the uniform. I could go train with them, get certified, and jump. But I remember a couple of years ago, some of my friends came down from New Jersey and they wanted to go skydiving. And growing up, you know, I was into all the extreme sports, skateboarding, snowboarding, and all that stuff. And I always had the fantasy of skydiving. Oh, yeah, I'll do it. But when it came down to where we were looking at prices on, on Google and on the websites, I'm like, I own a business. I got a daughter. My parents rely on me. I'm, like all the, all the what ifs start going through your head. Like, if it came down to it, we drove out there, would I back out of this? And and those thoughts never came through my head before growing up. But at this point, once again, you know, I'm, I've since closed that business down. But I, was, I, I literally was like think going through the what ifs of all the bad crap and all the people who are dependent on me. I was like, I don't know if I would be responsible for me to go do this. There's always, yeah, uh guy we were with on who's, who's part of the crew for the tour, he, he did about 3,000 jumps. <clears throat> and, uh, the only thing is apparently that you have to pack your parachute. Yeah. Now this guy's telling me it's like, well, it's it's not that hard. I could teach you that in ten minutes. But you're like, okay. And obviously, you're like, don't take you know, take your time, take your time. Yeah. Yeah. Can you can you pack this for me? I'll tell you what, where's the guy who's been working with you guys for ten years? Have him, I'll pay him to have him pack my suit. I don't want to do it. Yeah. I can't but even fold up my sleeping bag and put it back in the pouch that I got from Walmart when I'm done camping. I don't want to pack my suit. Amen. So so yeah, for everything else, all that training you have to you'd have to pay. But this lieutenant colonel was like, "No, we'll we'll uh, we'll train you." And then you're like, "Okay, <laughs> um, yeah, that'd be pretty cool. That'd be pretty cool to uh, to to land there in a, in a you know in a round." And but there's all there's also always people that get injured. This is a question for all three of you, because uh, I know you've all done battlefield tours, and I've yet to do one of them. 
when you show up at some of these places, obviously they're going to be the answer is going to be different on where you went and and what battlefield it was. And maybe we'll go around the around the horn here and answering this. And we'll start with Scott since he's in the middle of telling us stories. Did you find certain landmarks or certain areas were either bigger or way smaller than you anticipated from all the photos and stories and books you've read? For example, you know, Pegasus Bridge, like, wow, I really thought it'd be bigger than that. Yeah. Pe- yeah, Pegasus. And it's not, it's a replacement bridge that's there. Lafayette is, is like, ridiculously small bridge. It, it, like, I figured like one tank could get across it at a time, but yeah. it was so strategic. But the beaches to me, what is that from point to Hawk to the last one is what sword the British beach. Yeah. It, it, that's um, 60 miles. 65 wow. miles. That's a haul. I would expect 15 or 20. I never really thought about it. No, it's huge. It's it's and you go they landed on all of this? Like all of it. Yeah. Like like 60 miles. And so you imagine all those ships like you can I, I was just trying to process that. It so, brings home the logistical complexity of it. Yes. Oh my god. I mean, how do you, yeah, to to coordinate that and of course everything didn't go right, but all the airdrops the night before and the bombing and but it's I was looking, I'm like, oh, maybe I'll go to, uh, you know, rent a car or try and get to, to uh, Sword Beach at the very end. And I'm looking at it and going, oh, that's going to take me an hour. Wow. Just to drive there from where I am. It, it's like, it's, it's really, I don't know if any, I mean, anybody watching, like you, your fans or you want to go. Uh, book something now anywhere in Normandy because everything's getting booked up. Uh, as we speak in the 80th will be that much bigger with, you know, all the big heads going there. But, um, we, I'm, I'm fortunate enough to, they've rented that Chateau for next year. So Henry, what about you? I know you went down to Peleliu and areas in the Pacific. Is there any Mm -hmm. particular place? Obviously we're, we're jumping on the other end of the spectrum here as far as storyline goes and, and theaters, but, was there a particular place that you saw that you thought was, wow, this is a hell of a lot smaller than I thought or read, or wow, this is actually a, a, a hell of a bigger lot area, and I can understand why the front lines had holes in it trying to protect this place? I guess I would answer that by saying, you know, we flew into Guam. That was a, a stopover point <clears throat> before we were actually going to the Palau's. And, of course, I'm, I know more about the Pacific War history and the chronology of it at this point than I did then, but to see Guam, Guam was a lot bigger, you know, I mean, five-star hotels everywhere you look. I mean, it, it, I was not expecting that. And then the juxtaposition between that and what I saw in the virginal nature of Peleliu was what, what really struck me. I mean, obviously Peleliu is more developed than it was then, but, um, it, but it's still very virginal, I think compared to, a lot of battlefields in the world, but were the landing beaches smaller or larger than you anticipated? As far as I, obviously skin depth is one thing, but width, I mean, mm-hmm. the skinnier it is, the more people you're going to be trying to cram in one location. Whereas if it's wider, you can spread out. And, and I would not say they were smaller just because I'd watched so many documentaries on it. 
you know, and just watched them again and again and again to, to just have it so fresh in my mind. So the, the context and the breadth of that lined, lined up with, with what I was expecting. What about the uh, famous bunker? Well, that was, you know, th- that was, um, I really hadn't expected to find that the guy who was our guide, it was his seventh time to go there and was pretty sure at that point he had the coordinates on it. So, um, that was probably next to the landing beach, you know, the, the biggest deal for me because there were people on the, on that excursion that really wanted to find that bunker. But the size of the bunker, because, you know, when we hear bunker, we some people picture huge thing. Was it, I mean, physically, was it smaller than you thought? Was it a larger bunker? Yeah, it was smaller because, I mean, looking down into it, all you saw was it was there was a lot of water in it and, and like some cypress roots and things, you know. And the guys I was with, we were thinking about how cool, how cool would it be to pump that water out, you know, and really get down in there. And Bring just, a sump pump, boys. Yeah, exactly. So, uh, but it was not like you could look down in there and imagine walking into it. It was more like an old cistern, huh? Like more like an old cistern at that point. Pretty much. Yeah. Yeah. What about you, Jeff? What, what battlefields have you seen? Just, have you done any outside of the country as far as World War II? I mean, not yet. I know you're planning on going to Europe, but I didn't know if you'd been over there previous or no, yeah, nothing, nothing World War II related uh, yet. <laughs> yeah, but uh, I'll tell you, you know, some of the historical places that I've seen where there was combat, of course, like I mentioned, the, the you know, the, the Little Bighorn River. Um, I'll tell you one, that, you know, again, it's not World War II related, but it's it's combat, right? And that's that's sure. the uh, gunfight at the OK Corral. Um, you know, that's that's an interesting place that is you know, prominent in history for whatever reason. Um, but going through, I've been there, I think three times now and man, just you cram nine guys in this area. And it's like, golly, it's such a small, it's, you know, it's not even at the, the corral. Like it's just, a, it was an empty lot. between so two buildings. In a living room. <laughs> it, basically. Yeah. So it's interesting to see. And, and I feel like that's probably going to be, um, for me, I, I, I don't know. I mean, the first time I went to a hockey game, I'm like, Oh my gosh, this is small, yeah. <laughs> you know? So I have a feeling that's going to be my reaction to a lot of things because I just see things. I, I feel like things are so much more vast. I mean, I just, even the first time I walked inside of a B 17, I'm like, Whoa. And I think I was like 14 or 15 when I went inside and I could barely get up into the top turret. <laughs> Like, this is, you know, this is crazy. It seems so much bigger on TV. <laughs> so, yeah. yeah, I'm excited to see some things World War II related for sure. Yeah, just like when you watch Fury, the inside of that Sherman seems a lot bigger. <laughs> That's for damn sure. Yeah. Tuna can. So what else... Uh... You got anything else? Do you want to now that you have decent bandwidth and you can actually hear us, Henry? You have any questions for Scott and his trip? No, I really was moved by hearing you talk about Jake Larson because I mean to to know that little eight year old French girls are aware of this man's efforts and are there to honor him. I mean that's that's a 
I like to hear that, um, you know, and you, you want to think that something like that could happen in this country too. Absolutely. Yeah, it's it just so that, that part of it to me, it's just the best part. It, it's so unbelievably moving. Um, you know, being there with Jim at the monument to his battalion, but just seeing people, uh, how they relate. I mean, they, you know, they, they can't speak English. <laughs> so all they can do is come up and thank you and kind of have a picture. And it means very genuinely so much to them. They're not getting an autograph. It's not a celebrity. Um, they're just, you, you feel that gratitude and you feel that love um, from the people. And I think maybe the last time I, I was on here, I talked about, being on Juno and someone, because I had a Canadian t-shirt on and this guy talked to me in French and asked me a few questions and I spoke to him in French and then he just thanked me. And I thought, I, it just, I was like, is he a fan of the Pacific? Or just for a, a, a gleaming moment. But then I'm like, no, he, you know, the Canadians liberated this area and he lives here. And we have all these pictures of uh, Canadian officers, uh, non-commissioned officer you know all the different pictures of, of canadians there and you're like wow that's that's really that's really incredible and um you know i think you just touched on something i know i've never put two and two together never thought of i don't know if henry or jeff ever has the the aspect of can you know the canadians helping liberate france obviously you got the french canadians and quebec and the relationship there and Never, you know, we never really, I personally never really thought about how much it had to mean to, you know, the Canadian Armed Forces and people of Canada to be part of that liberation of, of France. Huge, right? Um, um, you're back, you're back. Your audio is here. Yeah, um, yeah, I mean, they, 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 they advanced quite far and their whole mission was, you know, go the, the the ports you know into Holland Netherlands um, it's surprising how few or how little the Canadian involvement is there I, I, I completely understand the American involvement um, and appreciate it because I wouldn't be there I wouldn't be doing these visits I think without that and I wish the Canadian involvement would be more and the British would be more um, and, and I, I, you know, I met it, I was at the AVA gala, which was initially sponsored by, I think the son of the mayor of St. Mary Glease. And so American veterans association, all the big wigs are there. There were four, four star generals from the U S there. Wow. I think there's, I think there's only six. Yeah. And Millie was there, General Millie. So he, I got, I was going to show you guys that. That's his coin there that he. Nice. Dropped at us. He, he's a character nice for sure. Challenge coin. But that was really cool. Um, but yeah, and there was one Canadian guy there, and he, I think he's, you know, he's attached to NATO, and he, and you just think, man, wouldn't there be a little bit more Canadian involvement or British involvement? And James Kelly, the vet that was with us he'd never been with 
Americans before. Never he'd been to Normandy a few times before, and he, he his his reflection was it's like, oh, how nice they are. I didn't think I didn't think Americans were this nice. <laughs> you know, I'd never been around them, so those cultural divides, but within that place and time, and you think, geez, you know, after next year, I don't know. Hopefully there's, I mean, there will be more and certainly for the French there, there will be more, but it, it, it's, I highly hope that uh, anyone can go there. You know, it's funny you say that, you know, they're surprised at how nice the Americans are. I think we start to get a bad rap overseas. Um, oh, yeah, yeah. Not to, not to hammer on TikTok too much, but there's two gentlemen who, from the UK who, got a pretty big following over here during the pandemic and all that. And they just came over here and kind of did a little tour from Florida to Texas and Georgia, Mississippi. And both their takeaways is like the Americans that are represented to us on the news and our media every day is not the Americans that they're like, they're going on their pages and saying to their, their followers, UK, like, Hey, we've been lied to about the Americans. They are the nicest, sweetest people we've ever met. And they're like totally, and they're coming back for fourth of July. But it's like, I'm starting to like, apparently they're not showing our best representation on the media and TV over there. Cause everybody I've talked to who, who, uh, meet Americans from over there are quite surprised how nice we can actually be. Absolutely. And all the people, the people that were, uh, you know, the people that bought, uh, tickets to go on this tour, like from San Antonio, I mean, just so nice and so thoughtful and appreciative and, um, I, how many opportunities like that do you get in life every year? I don't know. It's just, it, it, it's so wonderful. It's really, really wonderful. Jeff, you got anything to add? Well, I wanted to ask Scott, if you don't mind, you, you had told me a story um, about your grandfather mm-hmm. and, and just a little snippet of his service during World War II. And I just, I, it's an amazing story. I don't know if you'd mind sharing a little bit of that. Um, yeah, so he, uh, his father had a transport, I don't know what you call it, shipping business. His father had a boat that he would take supplies to the North Shore of Quebec from Nova Scotia. And his father died when he was about 17. So he had to learn that business, how to sail. Eventually he joined the RCMP Marine Division and he was chasing, chasing rum runners in the, in the thirties. And then the war broke out, um, 39 for, for the Canadians. So the RCMP Marine division was taken over by the Canadian Navy, the Canadian by the British. And he ultimately captained, um, nine different ships in six years. And he sunk, uh, two subs. It was the first Canadian frigate to, to sig it. Uh, sink a sub in the North Atlantic, 1943. And he also sunk one on a convoy uh, in the St. Lawrence. And he was awarded um, the D- uh, DSC, which was in the Commonwealth. I think that's the third highest. Um, Using depth charges? First time I had heard about a U-boat being in the St. Lawrence River. I mean, that's that's incredible. That's a little too close for yeah. comfort there. It, it's as it's as deep as the ocean is. That's the people that are really, and he was on this big convoy on, on a minesweeper, 
And uh, there'd only be two ships within a convoy at the head and the back that could fight or do anything, for lack of a better word, right? There wasn't six, seven ships. That's all they had. So he was at the tail, and uh, this sub sunk, I think, four or five of the ships. And he finally got it, but um, wasn't able to any debris or prisoners, so he didn't get credit for it. He had to carry on. The one in the North Atlantic, he, the British ship was the head of the convoy, and he's at the tail in the frigate. And then, you know, his sonar guy, well, detect something, so peeled off, right? They do, they do a circle, send depth charges, nothing came up. Did it a second time, nothing came up. And then he wanted to do again, and then Nini, the British ship, the guy... The, the commander of that one said, no, just return to the convoy. We think it's poor. Experts agree it's porpoise. Return to convoy. And this was in the transcripts that I had. And my grandfather just said, give me one more shot. So, okay. And he went off, sunk the depth charges. The sub came up. They sank it. And then he was getting all these congratulations from the other ships. And then my grandfather wrote back to the, the lead British ship. He goes, how about your experts now? <laughs> <laughs> now, obviously, the primary damage was caused by depth charges. You said it came up and then they sank it. What did they use to, for the crippling blows on it? Uh, so that the frigate had the uh, Orlicon gun. Okay. Orlicon, yep. Yeah. <clears throat> so I don't know what the, I mean, the shells. Like, yeah, they're huge. It'd be a 40 yeah. millimeter, wouldn't it? Believe so. Yeah. And they just, it came up and they blasted it. And, and, um, but my grandfather had nightmares about that for the rest of his life. These, you know, young German kids in the freezing Atlantic, just screaming for their mothers. And he, he did, I don't, I think this was just a bar story maybe, but he said the commander of the sub got up on the deck, spit and went Heil Hitler. And my granddad got him a mop and made him mop the whole deck. Yeah. You know, might have been a story, but still, that whole naval part of it too. When the, and you know, guys in the water like that—it's just. I'm not sure horrific. if this is 40 millimeter, but this was a this is a wooden naval training round that somebody gave me a long time ago. It's got the same weight, but it's a wooden shell. They use these in the navy for training instead of, you know, when they didn't have live rounds. But I wonder if this—that's big. That's bigger. Yeah. Than the Orlicon. Sadly, one. it's not stamped, so I'm not sure exactly the size of it. I used to know, but I plum forgot. This yep, is a, but some of the, that's the other thing. Being at Normandy and oh, this is 50 cal. Some of the gun, you know, the guns that the Germans had that you could shoot 35 kilometers. I mean, that's insane. You know, it just right. you you can't. Uh, there's not enough time when you go there to to you know. You could spend weeks and weeks or months, but I just, uh, you know, not so much the weather. The weather can be a little shaky, but just the people, the environment, the history, that part of the world, um, I can't get enough of, really. How many days did you spend over there last trip? Uh, ten. So even in ten days, not enough time. Not enough. I wanted to get to... I'd, I'd like to get to Vimy, which is a big thing for Canada in the First World War. 
that train ride was I think like six hours from where we were, you know, not enough time. I've not seen either of the British beaches. Uh, I've not seen any of the German cemeteries there, which I'd like to visit, you know. Um, it's just so huge. Like, it's just, you know, in a movie or a book, it might seem small, but, oh, my God, that's just a huge area that you think, man, if this thing failed, where would we be? And then you think about that size, and then you put in the consideration of Blitzkrieg and how fast they were moving. Yeah. Like, wow. And then you can understand, oh, now I understand what they mean by outrunning your, your supplies. You know, getting too far out in front of your supply train could definitely uh, slow you down. But, yeah, I mean, size and – granted, we had Jeeps and Deuce and a Halfs and all that, but the Germans, you know, they had their, their tanks and their half-tracks, but a lot of their stuff was still – Especially later in war, they're still relying heavily on horses and to cover that much ground. I, I just, uh, like, if you bomb that beach and those bunkers that much, you would think the majority of them would be knocked out, and virtually none of them were. That's yeah. astounding, right? Yeah, we also got to consider the amount of new pilots and new, oh, yeah. new soldiers in general who didn't have, you know, obviously we, we sent a lot of them who had the experience from the African campaign, but so many of them are just new to it all and new technology and everything. It's just move, yeah. moving that many people that quick with that much new technology. And, and as we've heard before, that's part of the reason why some of the beach landings were so bad because the key part of the planning was we're going to bomb these big ass craters in the beaches, to give our guys a place to hide. And a lot of those bombs missed the targets. And so their, their key defensive position, as far as covering from those, aforementioned bunkers and machine guns, there was nothing there to hide in. So you guys will all be there next year? I wish. I, I would love to. I would have to. I would, I, I, I just completely, my brain locked up on even the notion of, I would love to get out to one of those, whether it's Europe or the South Pacific. I, it's definitely on my bucket list. Well, I'd be, uh, I'm going to, to Hawaii in December. That, that's our first Pacific event. Um, honoring a couple veterans that are still around. Hopefully they're around at the uh, Aviation Museum on Ford Island. Nice. Yeah. We had a young lady on a few years back who was at the, who revisited the Arizona area and down in uh, Pearl Harbor and gave us a pretty good uh, first-hand account of seeing those memorial sites and all that. But yeah. I think the last survivor of that died today, actually. Really? Yeah. It was on my feet. I think the last guy that, yeah. But that's, yeah, you know, another thing for the Pacific, there's so little that you can do experience or, you know, try to commemorate other than Pearl Harbor. Peleliu, the 80th, uh, that, that'll be in August uh, this year, the next year. Um, it was on your timeline today, but um, dateline May 26th, so last month. Um, oh, was it? Okay. 
Uh, hold on. It's one of those pages where like they try to make you sign in. 101 year old is the last survivor of. Uh, I'm sorry, that was an interview of him being the last survivor. But yeah, let's see here. I'm trying to see when he passed away. So it looks like they interviewed him last month. Uh, da, 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 da. Nope, you're. Uh, yeah, it was something just today. Yeah. Yeah, because that's kind of. Oh, yeah, Ken Potts, one of the last survivors. He passed away three months ago. But yeah, I think you're right. I'm just trying to find the news story. I was just reading. I don't know if you, you know, you can get to this part about books there, but. Well, we'll, we'll get right into it. I got to. I got to. If I don't enter it correctly, we'll get a bunch of hate email because for some reason people like the way I say it. So, um, I'm just going to start with you, Mr. Scott Gibson. What you reading? Well, Devil Dogs <coughs> by Saul David. A little forward there from uh, Henry Sledge, is it? I, I think I'm familiar with that name. Have you heard, have you heard of that guy? I, I think I might know him. Beautiful forward, my friend. Thank you. I, I appreciate that. Uh, I'm early into it, but um, he, he's, he's, he's got quite a nice flow in his narrative in terms of piecing things together and um, figuring it out in the interpersonal stories and his own perspective on it was interesting it's like if he said if they'd have lost Guadalcanal they'd have had to surrender you know yeah everything was on a knife edge at that point that's it, right those you two Guadalcanal D-Day those things don't go right. Wow. Yeah. So different. Um, but yeah, I'm really uh, just been getting into it since I got back there. But yeah, Henry, that was great for man. Seriously. Well, thank you. I really appreciate that. Mm. <clears throat> if I read, if, if, if I write a book about my life, I want you to write the forward. <laughs> you can make, you can make stuff up. And the movie, Jeff will star in the movie. Jeff will play me in the movie without his mustache. <laughs> no, I think he has to keep the mustache. We'll just we'll take artistic licensing for people. <laughs> people that know that in yeah. your off time you rocked a, you know, a, a, a nineteen thirty nine yeah. mustache. I had the stash. Yeah. Well, I mean, the part I'm playing is is this major Goldstein with the Pathfinders. And I just feel like Major Goldstein had a mustache, so uh, sounds like you know, we haven't started filming yet. So I'm, I'm practicing, but it's you know, pun intended, it's growing on me. No, it's, it's growing great. on me. Major Goldstein uh, sounds like he's a dapper damn like man it. for sure. What's that? I said Major Goldstein sounds like he would have been a dapper Dan man for sure. Right, that's what he's going to be. <laughs> <laughs> Whether he for wants sure. to be or not, he's not a fop guy. He's a dapper Dan man. <laughs> <laughs> Jeff, what you reading? Ah, uh, man, you know, there's always that oddball, and that's me. I'm reading uh, Fire at Sea by uh, Thomas Gallagher. Uh, this is not a World War II book. I'm sorry, that's but right. it's a great story. Um, this is about uh, Fire at Sea is the mysterious tragedy of the Morrow Castle. <clears throat> Morrow Castle was a passenger liner that uh, in 1934 um, caught fire and beached in Asbury Park, New Jersey. 
just off the kind of one of those main piers where there was a lot of people hanging out, just watching hundreds of people burning to death without any way of getting help to it. And the ship was there for a few years wow. in Asbury Park. Um, yeah, it was, it was, uh, it was just kind of a, um, you know, an ocean liner that would go from New York to Havana, Cuba for five days. And it's, um, I was kind of drawn to this in a museum, uh, at the New Jersey Maritime Museum. Uh, when I was up there last year, there was a whole exhibit you walked in and it was like, Oh, this must be like Titanic. That's the first thing I thought of. And, but everything in this maritime museum, of course, had to do with New Jersey maritime history, right? So there was some stuff, there were some pieces of subs, German U-boats, you know, that had washed ashore there and some of the stuff, you know, World War II related. Um, but it just seemed very Titanic-esque. But then reading, you know, the panels on the wall and looking at the artifacts, like, oh, there was another ocean liner that tragically, you know, sunk and uh, a huge loss of life and just never... <laughs> never heard of it before um but it's an interesting story because the captain was poisoned to death uh at supper time and the night before they were supposed to come to port and then about five hours later it mysteriously catches fire and um so it's it's an interesting kind of a whodunit um mixed with a tragedy at sea and um i I haven't gone through the whole book yet, but I, I know I've pieced together enough of the story in the museum that uh, it was arson from one of the radio operators. And he made it, you know, he came home like he was the hero until people really started piecing it together, especially by the 1950s. And he was being questioned while he was uh, at the New York State Penitentiary for murder of two different people. So this guy was a real character. Yeah, some um, stand up interesting, fellow. Interesting. Yeah, interesting. But it's like all these things that line up that had to go wrong that he knew how to take advantage of. Uh, so it's really, it's an interesting story. I mean, it's history, right? You know, 1930s, it's interesting um, reading about the maritime laws and how things were done and how we thought we were not going to see another Titanic um, type disaster. And yeah, the Morrow Castle. Is, is every bit as disastrous as, as the Titanic for sure. Was it, well, I'm, it was probably a smaller vessel though, right? Oh, it was. Yeah. It, it was a smaller vessel. There's about 300 passengers, 200 crew. A lot of the crew had world war one experience, you know, Navy world war one escort convoy duties, things like that. So interesting to kind of hear their, their history. Yeah. Um, you know, but it's crazy to think that you could survive something like being on a naval ship in World War One and then dying in an accident like that on a trip from Havana to New Jersey. Yeah. Yeah. And it's like I said, it sat there for years till finally somebody made an effort to move the dang thing because it's just rotting bodies inside and it's just crazy. We're going to try real quick. Henry's. Internet's dropping out on him. Henry, before you go, what you reading? I'm just about to finish up volume three of Ian Toll's trilogy, Twilight of the Gods. Is it wrapping up as well as you thought it would? As far as the series goes? 
I think I'm losing you. Yeah, we can hear you fine. That's all right. We're getting ready to uh, wrap it up anyhow. I'm still, um, I had to take some time off, just crazy, you know, how life goes. So I just now, two days ago, jumped back into uh, Four Hours of of Fury. So I'm getting back into that. Um, As Scott mentioned earlier, um, I'm just so intrigued about the glider riders. I don't think there's been enough about that part of the airborne and they deal a lot of, there's a lot of good content about glider riders in this book. And so, um, that helps keep me intrigued, but, uh, Jeff's, I mean, Henry's internet's getting a little flaky and, uh, we're about ready to wrap it up anyhow. So before we go, Scott, you got anything coming down the pike you want to promote? Uh, well, there's a couple, you know, cheesy, uh, Christmas movies. Hey, we all love a good, Cheesy. Hallmark Christmas movies. Uh, what's Yes, Chef was one starring Tia Mowry. She was uh, Sister Sister, that show, years ago. Um, the other one I can't remember. But I'm doing this event uh, in, in December in Hawaii. And if there's any way we can hook something up and, and chat with the other guys or do something live, Sure, we'll make it happen. Yeah, I would love that. I would love oh, that. Oh, we love it too. Specific content, and um, you know, maybe if we can get any uh, the vets there as well, and or just be connected to that Q and A, that'd be great. <clears throat> yeah, you got me email. We'll talk about it after after uh, the show. Yeah, Jeff, you got anything coming down the line? Well, uh, really, the biggest thing I'm looking forward to is is seeing Scott in San Antonio in September. That game, better than that. <laughs> you're going yeah I'm gone I told you the other night I'm going they ain't changed <laughs> you're not far you're not far no when you gotta when you fly into Texas to hang out with Jeff you gotta fly into San Antonio that's where I flew into that's where yeah. you fly yeah yep, yep, yep. yeah Reed, Reed will be at that event right and uh, yeah they have a, a lot of vets uh, you know Pacific, uh, Vietnam. It's it's really incredible. Yeah, I can't wait. I'm gonna it's gonna be a little bit of an effort to you know peel my wife off of you when we're there. So I was I, I was gonna make the comment that I think your wife's well, more you know, more excited to meet him than you are, but I didn't want to go there uh, just because his connection's getting crappy. Henry, before you go, do you get anything to promote? Yeah, I'm starting to <clears throat> correspond a good bit with James Holland about the We Have Ways History Festival in England in uh, September. Wow, so that's, that's right around the corner. Yeah. We'll have to try to make something happen over there, too. Yeah. WTSP is about that. to go international, ladies and gentlemen. But that's going to wrap it up for this episode of the What's the Scuttlebutt podcast. We want to thank each and every one of you for your con- your continued support of the show. And if you want to support the show a little extra other than just listening and uh, sharing it in social media, please head over to WTSPWorldWar2.com. You can get yourself a sweet WTSP t-shirt like the one Jeff's wearing. It has the, I believe, the lunch K-ration kit or my new one. As well as many, many others. We got jackets, we got coffee mugs, we got Everettang. And uh, while you're there, you can also click on a Patreon link, sign up, and subscribe. It'll cost you a dollar a month. There's two other plans, but we don't care about that. We just love to have that dollar a month. That'll go a long way to support what we do. Or you can just head over to youtube.com, find Digital 410 or D410 Media. Either one of them will get you there. Like, subscribe, watch some of our videos, and that'll help go a long way as well. For myself, Mr. Jeff Cup, said a Henry Sledge. 
and the wonderful Scott Gibson. We want to thank each and every one of you, and we will talk to you all next week. This has been a Digital 410 production. <laughs>